0: So now,
1: please
2: welcome to the stage your host for this evening, Damian Barr. Hello. O'Brien. Oh, Brighton. Going? Oh my God. I'm not going to sing, don't worry. But the Pet Shop Boys don't either, so it's fine. <laughs> you can go west, but not too far, or you'll end up in Hove. Or Portslade? Anybody in from Portslade tonight? Yes, shout out if you're from Portslade. Oh shit, there you go. Are you gonna be on the bus on the way back home on your own? We can arrange a companion, okay. Anyway, welcome, welcome to the Literary Salon here at the gorgeous Theatre Royal. Uh, Welcome back to some of you. Who was here for our classic women's salon with uh, Natalie Haynes and Mary Beard? Anybody here raise your hand? Yes, there are lots of you. Natalie gave us a brilliant preview of her novel, A Thousand Ships, her feminist retelling of the Trojan War. She's currently outselling Homer on Amazon. (laughs) He's had a couple of thousand years. It's fine. He He can let go. And Professor Beard put her feet up on our couch which we've since had to be upholstered. Uh, those two events aren't connected, but she was incredible. And do you remember that we pitched a show that night called Statue Fucking with Mary Beard? <laughs> the BBC is now taking it to the next stage, which is very exciting. So anyway, welcome uh, the few remaining salon virgins, the pre-loved and the much-loved. Um, I have missed you like the deserts Mr the rain. <laughs> I'm trying to see if Tracy's giving me a really dirty look from the wings. Oh yeah, I'm getting side-eye. Um, tonight's, uh, sorry, uh, this is our 11th year of Salons, um, as you may know, and we've over the years welcomed an incredible mixture of people, including David Nichols, who unveiled One Day and Us with Us, and most recently his great new novel, Sweet Sorrow. Other guests include Maggie O'Farrell and Catelyn Moran, and the dear departed Diana Athill, who warned me never cross your legs in a kilt. We've got Sal and alumni in the house. We've got Juno Dawson and Alexandra Hemansley here. There's Juno Dawson and the lady. There we are, up there. Um, Attitude magazine have just done a special um, with 50 different covers to mark 50 years since Stonewall. And Juno and her partner Max are on one of the covers. How cute is that? Aww. It is a very lovely picture, and it's very lovely to have you. So our regular home is the Savoy, but it's lovely to be back here on the stage, graced by such icons as Marlena Dietrich, Dame Judy Dench and various Nolan sisters. Um, I, how many are there? I don't know. How many are left? Still don't know. And Judy Garland, Judy Garland was on this stage and Judy Garland died 50 years ago tonight. We can summon her ghost. Um, and we know, of course, that the Stonewall riots um, were partly sparked uh, by her death. So I do look forward to seeing everybody outside Revenge with a brick afterwards. <laughs> as we fight for freedom. So anyway, um, you can find out more about the style on, on Facebook or on, uh, on our, uh, our website. And you can find out about our forthcoming TV series, which is very exciting. Uh, we're bringing books back to telly. Uh, starting in the autumn, we will be on at BBC Scotland and iPlayer, so make sure you tune in and watch it, otherwise you're going to be watching back-to-back Bergerac and Brexit Olympics forever. Um, we're giving you good content, shout about it, so that starts in the autumn, we're very excited. So tonight's theme is outsider voices. We all have a voice and some of us might feel like outsiders and as it's brightened and I've lived here for 20 years I'm going to go out on a limb and say that most of you sitting here tonight have felt like outsiders at some point. Perhaps you still do, perhaps you did earlier today when you got a look, read a tweet or remembered something that should never have been said to you. We all have a voice. Some of us are so loud that our neighbours can hear us, and they have to call the police. (laughs) But right now, 48% of the country and 68% of Brighton does not feel heard, while the remaining 52% feel they are not being given a fair hearing. Their pained silence is expressed daily in the pages of every national newspaper. <laughs> Bless. As a child, I was warned that no one would believe me if I told them what was happening at home. I was told to keep the secrets, um, and I did until I shared them in my memoir, Maggie and Me, Secrets of Abuse, but also of Survival. Writing that book helped me find my voice. When I began researching my novel, You Will Be Safe Here, I realised that I had to use my voice to speak for other people, to tell the stories that I found in South Africa, stories from 1900 to now, stories of how Britain invented the concentration camp during the Boer War, which you may have seen Emma Thompson talking about so terrifyingly in years and years. Stories of these places where boys like me and like some of you are still being put. So I used fiction to tell the truth. Reading is an act of radical empathy. It is about experiencing the lives of others, other people, other places, other times. It is about listening um, when what we have to hear is hard, maybe especially when it's really tough. It's about turning the page, not turning away. Each of the faces on our slideshow tonight dared to be heard to tell their stories whatever the price because the cost of not telling them was even greater. Tonight is not just about finding our own voices, daring to share our own stories, it's also about listening to others. To write your memoir is to share your story, to read a memoir is to become part of somebody else's story, to see yourself in their pages. And tonight we have two brave and brilliant outsiders, two incredibly inspiring artists who have fought to find their own voices. What voices? what stories the books are incredible they're going to read from them tonight and then we're going to talk about them and you're going to get to ask questions if you want to be very contemporary you can tweet us questions using the hashtag lit salon you can fill out a question card um, when we had armistead mob in here we got a lot of phone numbers <laughs> you can try that again tonight if you want Um, And if you join our mailing list, um, which I of course encourage you to do, um, you might win tonight's books signed. So there you go. Um, After the break, Oscar-winning writer and activist Dustin Lance Black tells us all about growing up as a gay Mormon mama's boy in Texas and how his fractured family and valiant mother helped him become the man he is. Now he's sitting in that box right there, Dustin Lance Black, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, but first up, a woman whose voice we all know and love. Tracy Thorne grew up in Brookmans Park, only 14 miles north of King's Cross, but basically another planet. <laughs> there, people aspired to a better class of bungalow, just like Hayward Heath. <laughs> Tracy takes us back to her 1970s childhood where life was slow and very little happened over and over again, as her diary records. Who was teen Tracy? Did she dream of becoming one of the world's best love singer songwriters? And will she get off with Dave from Harpenden again? <laughs> Important questions. Please welcome the one and only Tracy Thorne. We've got our wine on tonight. We have, we have. Here you go. Do you want to do a little cheers? No <laughs> you sure? Are you sure? I'm save it. She's had two glasses backstage.
0: Yeah.
2: <laughs> <laughs> right. So we're gonna have we're gonna have a reading. Yeah. So, um, from yes. the start, shall we?
0: Yes, I'm gonna read a couple of sections from the book just to give a general idea. So I make quite a lot of use in the book um, of my teenage diaries. Um, so I'm gonna read a section from the beginning, which um, <laughs> gives you an idea of what those diaries were like. Going right back to the start, I tried to picture myself on the day I first decided to keep a diary, 29th of December, 1975, when I was 13 years old. I must have been given it as a Christmas present, and although it was for the year 1976, its first few pages invited entries for the end of the previous year. So I began as the old year ended, just before it turned to face the new. I would have settled down with a pen Riffled through the year's worth of blank, empty pages before breaking it open at the very start and then, 29th December 1975, went to St Albans with Debbie, got a belt, could not get a jumper or skirt. <laughs> <laughs> That's it. That's all she wrote. No starting with a bang, no announcing herself to the world or to a future reader, no declaration of intent. Instead, I draw a circle and leave it empty, my eye caught by an absence. And it wasn't an aberration. I carried on in that style for years, making countless entries about not buying things, (laughs) not going to the disco, not going to school, a piano lesson being canceled, the school coach not arriving. It's a life described by what's missing and what fails to happen. My second ever entry is just as banal, 30th of December. Went to Welling with Liz, didn't get anything except a bag of Kentucky chips. 1st of January 1977, went to Welling with Mum and Dad to get some boots, but couldn't get any. (laughs) 8th of January, Liz and I went to Potter's Bar in the afternoon to try to get her ears pierced, but she couldn't. (laughs) 19th of January, 1979, Deb and I went to St Albans. Tried to get some black trousers, but couldn't find any nice ones. 17th of March. Tried to go to the library, but it was shut. Was it me, or was it my surroundings? Was it just that I was the dullest child in existence? (laughs) Noticing nothing, experiencing nothing, thinking nothing? Or was it at least in part an embodiment of something in the air? Something vague and undefined? Even when I write about it now, I realise that the time and place in which I grew up, 1970s suburbia, is easier to define by saying what it wasn't than what it was. Brookman's Park was a village, but not a village. Rural, but not rural. A stop on the line. A space in between two landscapes that are both more highly rated. The city and the countryside. A contingent, liminal, border territory. In between land. When I came to write a song about the place, Oxford Street, I fell back into this habit of describing by subtraction, (coughs) stating what wasn't there... Where I grew up, there were no factories. And only then going on to admit that there was a school and shops and some fields and trees. But although there were fields, there was no agricultural life. No one worked as a farmer. All the men got on the train every morning with a briefcase to go up to town. Nature writers would have found little there to describe. It was not a place of shepherds or hawks. There was no real scenery. No hills or lakes, nothing in the way of a view. Here I am again, talking about what it is not. What is it about the place that demands to be written about in such an equivocal way? Like the negative of a photo, it's as if the technicolour version of life were happening elsewhere, full of events and successes, dreams and achievements. Meanwhile, Whenever I tried to sum up the place where I lived and the life I was living, I would write over and over again, this didn't happen, that didn't happen. It's neither one thing nor another, and I'm neither here nor there. Thank you. I think I'll press straight on and I'm just going to read another little short section from later on in the book. Um, A lot of the story that's told is about um, my struggles as a teenager in a place like that, you know, with all its um, absences and the things it lacked and the boredom and the struggle against my parents very much as well. And I just want to read a section from the end about how that sort of played out in later life. The distance that had grown up between me and my parents in my teens never quite closed up and it was due in part to my increased education and change of lifestyle. Like so many similar parents, they'd wanted me to do well at school and then go to university to take those chances they'd never had. And then when I did, it turned me into someone they thought they couldn't understand. Later on, they'd be proud of my musical success, but perhaps more because it was success and therefore respectable than because it was artistically interesting to them. They liked the music when it was more mainstream, and they liked the gigs at the Albert Hall because they were tangible proof of achievement and status. And they enjoyed the sense of pride and reflected glory at the backstage party. And all of this was soothing and reassuring to them, because it took away some of the fear that they had lost me to rock and roll. We never know our parents as we are growing up, only getting to understand them, once we are ourselves, standing in their old discarded shoes, and perhaps it can't be any other way. But if we don't know our parents, I do also wonder whether they ever know us. In later years, after my break to have children, When I went back to music and recorded an album called Out of the Woods in 2007, I sent them a copy, expecting a phone call or something a day or two later, hoping for parental praise, as you always do, as you still do, even when you're a grown-up and a success and a mother. It never came. They never mentioned it or said anything about the record. My sister Debbie told me later they'd found it hard to understand, and I was never sure what exactly was hard to understand. The music? Or the reason for making a record? The need? Perhaps that. And later still, when I wrote Bedsit Disco Queen, my dad's only comment to Debbie was, I never knew Tracy was so into music. (laughs) (laughs) which still makes me laugh till I cry for all it says about how much we can remain a complete and utter mystery to those who should know us the best. And then again, in even later years, he would say to Debbie, in reference to something or other I had done, some inexplicable action, some bizarre life choice, and this, remember, when I was a middle-aged, middle-class woman married to the man I'd been with for over 30 years, with three children, he would say, oh, Tracy, she's from another planet. <laughs> Thank you.
2: I just love that. I didn't know she was so into music. I mean, what did you think you were doing? Well, it's a very
0: good question. And I suppose, you know, it's a very um, neat little embodiment of that gap that Mm. there can be, even between people who've, you know, lived in the same house together. I lived at home during those years when I was discovering music, when it became the thing that, you know, was to define my working life. Um, but in some corner of his mind, he clearly regarded it really as just some kind of bizarre hobby. Yeah. Um, and I do honestly think until I actually then became a mother and had kids, that was the first explicable thing I'd done that my parents could sort of understand, understand that and place done. and make sense
2: of. Yeah. Yeah. Even though you did it in a, a very different way. <laughs> yeah. Um, let's go back to, to Brookmans Park to start off with. <laughs> Uh, because it's the sort of place, you know, growing up as I did in the west of Scotland in a pet village, Brookman's Park seems to me impossibly exotic. Of when course. When I was reading about it, I was like, oh yes. my God, it's the kind of place where you might find Narnia in the back of a wardrobe. <laughs> it just seemed, it seemed, almost, it seemed almost romantic. And you describe it in a way that I think is very interesting. You're, you're fond of it. You're interested yeah. in it. You're, you're also not interested in it and don't want to be there. You have a, there's a very interesting tension at the heart of your relationship. Um, mm. And I'd like to talk about when that came in, but let's take us right back to the beginning and how you were there as a little girl. What, what, was, what was family life like in Brookmans Park? Very you? happy.
0: It was a lovely place to be a child. Um, it was very self-contained. Um, It had a village green around which sat all the shops, every shop you could need, you know, a butcher, a baker, a fishmonger, a hairdresser, um, a GP, a dentist, a primary school, a secondary school, a church, a pub, literally everything, Mm. which is almost this sort of picture-perfect creation of a village, which is precisely what it was. It had been um, town planned in the 1920s and Mm. built in the 1930s along with the sort of local garden cities. Welling Garden City was just up the road. Mm. Um, and so, you know, it was a very managed landscape for people. It was created in order to give people this sort of um, supposedly idyllic lifestyle, and then they could just hop on the train and go and be worker bees up in, in London, London. Yeah. which is what all the men did. So as a child, it seemed perfect. I could watch school, I could get on my bike and cycle past fields, and it all seemed fine. But the danger of that sort of self-sufficiency became apparent in my teens when, you know, the flip side of that is a place that has apparently everything starts to believe that it doesn't need the outside world and doesn't want to look at the outside world and then starts to feel threatened by the outside world. And that was the sort of atmosphere in which I was brought up.
2: Yeah, and it's for a place that's supposed to feel very safe. You write a lot in the book, and sometimes quite shockingly about incidents of violence that have occurred, or more often violence that you're that you're told will occur if you behave, you know, and if you go to certain parts of, you know, the town.
0: Yeah, we were we were given very strong messages about the dangers inherent, even in this apparently safe place. You know, it was supposed to be so safe that my parents had moved there from London mm. after the war, they and understand. They were both born Yeah, they both grew up and lived through the Blitz. So, again, understandable to want to leave bombed-out London. I get that. Um, and apparently, you know, bring your family up in this safe place. But then, as I'm sure anyone else who was a child in the 70s will remember, we were bombarded with constant information about the threat from the outside world. So we were shown these horrific um, public safety information films at school um, I'm sure people can remember them, you know, don't, don't go on an icy pond, don't go near that electricity pylon. Um, and the one that terrorised me the most was the don't-get-yourself-kidnapped don't one, you know, <laughs> um, which ended with a girl cowering while some shad, shadowy figure loomed over her. I was doing a book event a couple of weeks ago, and I told that story, and the woman who was the girl in that video came and said hello to me. No! said oh my god you've literally haunted my entire childhood um,
2: <laughs> had she been kidnapped at any point apparently she, not no, apparently it, was she was it was all made anyway, up it was all made up anyway but it
0: made me feel that you know i can understand obviously giving children information about you yeah. know th- dangers that might be out there but i think there was a sort of underlying sense in which there's an element of control involved in all this yeah. if you make people think the entire world is terrifying and that the only way for them to keep safe is by obeying these rules you are actually controlling people Mm. and especially as a girl we were very controlled you know the message of the kidnap video was as i jokingly said don't get yourself kidnapped and the messages that were said to me always were you know don't go and get yourself attacked by a man which meant don't do this don't dress like that don't walk home from the station you know, no sense of, you know, as a community, is there anything we can do here to make our women folks yeah. safer? Yeah. Just this constant message of this, these are the things you mustn't do. And it just fed into a narrative of, you know, this is the straight and narrow path along which you should live your life Mm. and if you start wanting to do other things you know going up to that London for gigs wearing plastic trousers you know then you'll deserve whatever
2: comes to you but I mean you were you were very conventional as a as a child and you were very happy to be very conventional yeah but I think kids
0: aren't in in the main Mm. you know kids like quite a lot of sort of routine and regularity and if everyone's basically nice to them which everyone was I had a fortunately, you know, happy home life in that sense, mm. there was nothing particularly to rebel against.
2: So there's you, your mum, your dad... Sister, sister and brother. Sister and yes. brother. So, perfect yeah. little thing.
0: Absolutely. You know, it's got that kind of cookie-cutter, apparently perfect, the nuclear family, yeah. um, you know, lovely postcard. What could possibly go wrong? <laughs> uh,
2: and there well, we are. What yeah, went wrong? What goes uh, well, <laughs>
0: what goes wrong is, you know, you become a teenager and you become curious about the world. And, you know, it's like living in the Truman Show. You know, there's moments when he suddenly thinks, hang on, is there something actually beyond that? Yeah. Is, that is that just a fake wall? I when mean, you... it was like that, that moment of realisation. Is that, is that just a fake wall there? Is there something beyond it?
2: What was that moment for you? Well,
0: I think it was partly connected to getting into music, really. I think the first little stirrings of... Um, punk, which, you know, I, I was into music already, but punk was the first music that seemed to get such a strong reaction. You know, all the grown-ups hated it so violently, which made really made your ears prick up. You thought, well, hang on, there must be something to it. Yeah. And then I started buying the music press, which was full of information about all sorts of exciting things. You know, um, stuff about politics and philosophy. You know, people like Paul Morley and Julie Birchell were writing the singles reviews and giving me an education at the same time as mm. talking about, you know, the new releases.
2: And were you the only one in your family like that? I mean, were your parents sort of listening to no. music and sort of being jazzy in the background? Oh, well, or the...
0: you know, yeah, Frank Sinatra records on. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, it's not, there wasn't any music, but it was... Um, it was background music. Yeah. Music was considered something that you put on in the background to create a nice atmosphere. Yes. Um, and you didn't want to take it any more seriously than that, really. And the, the, in a way, the, the one of the main messages that I got a lot of the time was you don't want to take anything too seriously. Right. I was constantly butting up against this thing of, um, you know... But in their terms, getting getting too serious about things, you know, objecting to things they would say politically and objecting to the racism of the golf club, you know, where our Jewish GP wasn't allowed to be a member. You know, this in the 1970s.
2: Your parents were um, Tories? Oh, yeah. Yeah.
0: Yeah, I mean, honestly, oh I don't, yeah, Oh, yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. I don't oh yeah. imagine anyone in yeah. the village wasn't. You yeah. know, it, the atmosphere was very conservative. <laughs> when I went back and revisited recently, there was a little... Um, you know, the sort of parish notice board on the Village Green in which it gives you a bit of information. And I noted that the local MP now is Grant Shapps. Oh. So nothing changes. Yeah.
2: And, and, and did your political consciousness start at the same time as the music consciousness? Were you, you know, were they part of the same thing for you?
0: I think it did, and I think it was just... It spoke to something instinctive in me. I didn't have any... Um, you know, theoretical political knowledge because where would I have got it yeah, from? Would you no one was telling me. No. Um, but I mean, there was something in the atmosphere of the times as well. I think our generation were instinctively um, growing up in the wake of the changes that, or the, the attempt to make changes that had happened in the late 60s and through the 70s. Mm. So we're the generation just coming along in the wake of that. Mm. So, you know, we are aware of racism and sexism and, you know, the women's liberation struggles and all those kinds of things. So it's sort of out there. It's often the topic of um, humour still. You mm. know, my first introduction to feminism was just people making jokes about bra burning. Um, that was the level at which it was discussed. Mm. But I think it would what I mean is those kind of thoughts and ideas were out there. Yeah. And if you started getting interested in the arts or culture and, you know, watching either music documentaries or the South Bank show or reading the NME, you started to come across ideas and it just all chimed with me, it all just struck me as like opening a window and thinking well hang on this world looks really exciting and interesting why is everyone going to the fucking golf club you know (laughs) jesus there's a world out there beyond that what seemed to me like maybe it was just a flat. It is just a flat. There's a world beyond yeah. it.
2: If you get on the train and go if up to London. you just get on the
0: train and, yeah, just get out
2: there. So when did you start doing that on your own and what was that like? Were you, were you scared as a, as a young girl from the suburbs going into town or were yes. you just like, get me there? No,
0: I was. I, I mean, I definitely had lots of um, all those messages buried inside me. Yeah. So although I was trying to rebel against them and reject them, yeah. um, you know, the trouble is you absorb them. So I would go to gigs and... And be a bit scared. And they were quite tough times. Um, you know, the late 70s, again, anyone who's of a similar age who went to gigs at that time will remember there was often a lot of violence. It was quite tribal. There were punks. There were skinheads. Um, I mean, know, I was so shocked when fights. you talk about that. Like yeah.
2: people kind of glassing one another, stabbing yeah, one yeah. another.
0: Quite regularly, honestly. Running home from gigs, getting on the tube to get back to somewhere and... You know, just sitting there hoping no one would get on. And, you know, sometimes, you know, the tube doors would open and you'd hear the sort of, you know, DMs, hammerings a Gang of Skinners would get on and you'd just sit there.
2: Oh my God, my first, down, so. my first gig was New Kids on the Block, and none of this happened. <laughs>
0: Kinda gentler
1: music.
2: <laughs> <laughs> I remember I, stood, I was seated in the far back corner and I stood up and there was a spotlight in front of me and, and I sort of reached out towards Donny and my hand went into the spotlight and my shadow touched his face. <laughs> <laughs> I've never said that to anyone before no. in my life. <laughs> I should maybe have kept that in, but, it's, but, it, but, it, but, it, but it was it's I true. think that, that a old, that's so, the opening line of your next book. Of the next mm, memoir. Yeah. Um, so when you were going to these gigs, yeah. were you leaving the house in regular clothes <laughs> and then, yes, getting, cha- were you, and then getting changed at yeah, yeah, the I Yeah, yeah, I did all that.
0: Did you? Getting changed at someone's house or in the back of someone's car. <laughs> um, and again, you know, I talk a bit in the book as well about House of the DIY Hour. Yeah. alternative culture was lots of making your own clothes so if you had a school blazer you know that would do as a punk jacket you could turn up the lapels and stick badges on it i think between us we had between me and my group of girlfriends we had one pair of plastic trousers and one pair of leopard print trousers that we just used to kind of share
2: <laughs> like little house on the prairie yes
0: make do and mend you know who's wearing plastic
2: trousers tonight with the plastic trousers of um, see through
0: no no black okay just yeah, checking yeah, just shiny, but but shiny sweaty. they must have been oh, very, yeah
2: yeah Yeah, Yeah. but that didn't matter. You were having great time. But I
0: was, you know, I was one of those um, mixture, you know, conventional girl at home, rebel outside of the home. I wasn't great at sort of doing the overt confrontation stuff because I sort of feared it might backfire and that actually my parents would come down so heavily that then they'd forbid me to do anything. Mm. So I was quite sneaky. Um, I became very duplicitous. I mean, I lived a bit of a double life a lot of the time, thinking that, you know if they didn't know too much, they would still let me do things, which would mean I could get away with more.
2: And let's so. talk about the diary and how, how the diary yeah. came about. Because you put lots of excerpts in the diary all the way through and they are hilarious. I like the confession that you fancy David Essex. That was that was good.
0: Surely that's just obvious, isn't it?
2: <laughs> Nothing to and, uh, It wasn't to me. I did oh. have to look him up. Oh. I was like, oh, I could see it. Oh. I could see it. Okay. Okay. So oh. Come, oh. On, come on, ladies. The David Essex fans <laughs> are N. they are N. Um, so, but um, when, when did you sort of rediscover the, the diaries? Did you keep them in a, in a trunk or a drawer somewhere? Did you always know they were there and you thought, oh, I'll go... Because when you've written memoir before, mm. this, is, this is very different. This is going to the source. It um, is.
0: When I wrote Beds at Disco Queen, I had a look at the diaries, but I was sort of just picking out little mentions of... Um, buying records, Mm. any little details about forming a band. So it was very selective. And it was a sort of editing of my own teenage years that made it all look very cool. It made it look like, you know, I just woke up one day and formed a band. Um, This book, because it was much more personal, um, I read them a lot more carefully. I read them over and over again, and, you know, I started to notice things like the repetition of actually noting down things that haven't happened. And Mm. I thought, as a writer, I thought, well, that's a gift. Mm. You know, that's really useful as just an opening, as a way in, of the notion of a place in which what doesn't happen is actually just as important, if not more important than what does happen. Mm. And that it's also, it says something about the very nature of memoir writing, which is that it's all about choosing what to say and what not to say. Which detail are you going to choose to tell your reader? Yeah. And even in a diary, I was, you know, for some bizarre reason, out of the 24 hours of that day, I was choosing to record the fact that I'd been unable to buy a belt. <laughs> you know, so it's it's mysterious, this whole thing of memory and recording and what we think is important. Did you keep um, a diary
2: every single day?
0: I did. From, from that point on, when I started in 1975, they peter out a little bit by about 1982-ish. Mm. So that's a, you know, it's a good chunk. I mean, it's my whole teens, really. Yeah. But the other thing I started noticing was the dishonesty. There are moments when I'm... You know, I outright lie to my diary. Oh, well, I didn't fancy him anyway. You know, the obvious kind of lies you might say to a friend... Yeah. ..you know, to save your um, embarrassment. But you sort of think... If a diary's for anything, isn't it supposed to be about actually opening up and being honest? But even in my diary, I kept up this sort of front of... You know, it's a bit undignified to admit to certain things.
2: Was that about the way that you had been raised, or was that because you thought, God, my mum might come snipping and I have to... Well,
0: there were some things I left out because of thinking that my mum read it. But I do also think there's a bit of magical thinking going on. And that, you know, there is something about writing things down that makes them real. And by not writing them down, you can pretend they didn't happen. Mm. And, you know, there are events I remember, but which aren't recorded in the diary. So... It, you know, in a way, the Why diaries, did you not record them? Well, that's what I mean, the magical thinking thing. If you know, I don't write it, it didn't happen. It didn't happen. You yeah. know, I can actually rewrite the story. I can make it end better than it did end. Mm. I can end by saying, well, I didn't like him anyway. And that's... I've sort of reclaimed something. I'm already rewriting the story. So that's what's so interesting about diaries. You know, if an outsider were using your diaries, there'd be a sense in which they would take them as gospel Mm. you know they think this is literally what you wrote at the time therefore it must be gospel truth but Mm. when you're reading your own diaries you you're aware of the gaps and the bits that are missing or the bits you've tweaked Mm. Um, and so it's just very interesting in that you know it raises all those those sort of um, memoir questions about you know what's what's the difference between honesty how much are you prepared to give away Uh, Is it really just about being in control of your material? Which I do think as a writer, a lot of the -hmm. point of it is just... How are you controlling your material in order to construct... A narrative that makes sense, that's interesting, that's got highs and lows... And light and shade, you know, so... There's artifice going on as well,
2: I suppose that's the interesting thing about them. That you're conscious of now, that you weren't necessarily conscious of. No, I I don't
0: think I would have given it a second thought at Mm. the time. I mean, you know, there must have been a a moment when I sat down at the end of the day with a pen Mm. and wrote something down that wasn't strictly true. Uh, But I think I probably felt quite pleased with myself thinking, good, that's tidied that up.
2: (laughs) There's, a, there's a, an incident that you draw our attention to in the book where you, where you talk about having left a blank page in yes. your diary yeah. and then you say in the, in, in, in the book, um, in Another Planet, you say, but I'm not going to tell you why I left that blank page, but yet you tell us that you left a blank page. Yeah. Why do you do that? Well, I thought it was very interesting. I mean,
0: I, I came across it, and it sits there. And, you know, in a packed diary, that really does stand out, a blank page. And I do remember what happened on the day of the blank page. Mm. And again, it was something I didn't quite have the words for, worried about my mum reading it, didn't really want to have to describe what happened, so mm. just thought I'd leave it. I think probably assuming, well, I'll remember anyway. And yeah, it's true, I do. Yeah. Um, but I had a couple of conversations with... Um, my editor Francis when I sent him the first draft and he sort of said well I'm desperate to know what's on the blank page and I went no that's not the point it isn't about Mm. me trying to whip up interest in a secret or in something melodramatic I don't want that to become the focus the focus is more on the what it says about writing not particularly what it says about my life or what might have happened to me that's not really the point I'm, I'm so interested in it just in terms of you know as I say, the light it, it casts on the very act of, of writing and the giving away and the withholding of information and how empowering that can be. Choosing not to write something down has a kind of power to it.
2: Yeah. Well, you no, were absolutely.
0: talking about voices earlier. Yeah. And obvious there's an obvious power in speaking and writing, but there is also a power in not saying certain things in that you're the one deciding.
2: There is a a lot in the book about um, appearances and therefore also about shame. Um, mm-hmm. you're discouraged from your, by your parents from making any kind of fuss about anything ever or drawing <laughs> attention to yourself ever at all. Mm. And yet here you sit on a stage, mm. you know, and, and you've had this you know, incredibly long career and you continue to to write and to make music and to, to, to make work. How, how do you manage that tension inside yourself? Because it must still be there. That's, yeah, it that's is. where you started.
0: It's, it is. I, I mean, I think at the beginning, especially, I had to really fight against it. Um, I do think there's a connection between the fact that the first music I ever made was very quiet. I literally didn't want to be overheard. So when I was writing songs at home, I would sit and play my electric guitar without even plugging it into an amp, which makes barely any noise at all. And in my head, I was sort of hearing these imagined, finished versions of songs, but playing them incredibly quietly. Um, So, you know, there there was a degree of, of me... You know, trying to sort of tread this tightrope, if you like, between um, wanting to be heard, wanting to, you know, make my mark on the world. But these voices in my all the time just going, you know, stop showing off, essentially, which was such a, a vivid and constant lesson when I was young. It really was considered one of the worst things especially as a girl yeah. that you could do and I do think it's about you know the messages that are given to girls and women all the time about taking up too much space mm. demanding too much attention you know um, talking too much the way that audiences sometimes think if there's you know an equal number of men and women you know they think they've spoken for an equal amount of time if if it's something like 80 20 in favour of the man mm. Um, and I think I did absorb all those messages, that it was somehow transgressive to take up too much space, to be too noisy, Um, but at the same time, you know, I'm getting into punk records, I'm listening to Patti Smith and Susie Sue and the Slits, and all of whom are are sort of giving me the opposite message of no, make a lot of noise, you know, we've got to fight back against this, Mm -hmm. and you can picture me, can't you, I'm literally torn between the two, I'm so attracted to that idea, it's so inspiring, it's what makes me even start and then there's these other forces pulling me back going no 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 but not too much um so I tried to find a you know just carve out a place that I think I could be comfortable with so a way in which to be you know quite assertive and distinctive um in a way that was still true to my character
2: um, you write yeah. in the book very movingly and honestly about your relationship with your mum and your dad mm. but um, one of the one of the ways mm. that i think your, your your mom has suffered suffers is she has a she has a breakdown basically because i think she hasn't shared she hasn't taken up enough space in the world she's unable to do the thing that you ultimately do which mm. is to to talk to share to communicate to as as, Dustin, or as Lance says mm. you know to spin yarns we'll talk about that mm. that later so do you think that that is why she ends up so so poorly and also ultimately um, making a fuss, in a way? There's something about her, of her mental illness which is making a fuss.
0: Yeah, I do think she was very much a part of her generation um, who, you know, she sort of missed the boat with feminism um, mm-hmm. or, or that wave of feminism that came in the 60s. You know, by then, she's already a mother living in conventional suburbs and she's, you know, she's bought into all sorts of other... Um, messages about her life which are very aspirational and about getting out of this you know working class london lifestyle and sort of a you know lifting her life up and making it more interesting in a conventional way mm. and i think for a long time it did actually work quite well for her i think she was very happy when we were young and then i think she had her menopause, and in those days, no one talked about that. Mm. And I suspect also that she just hit those middle years, you know, kids growing up and moving, and just did that big sort of thing of, right, what next? What, what's my life been? What am I going to do next? Mm. And, you know, I talk about the fact that um, at the time I was writing this book, I was exactly the same age that she was in the book with teenage me. And I went through a lot of the similar things... But the atmosphere around it all now is so different. You know, you can go to your GP and talk about HRT. Someone will suggest you download a mindfulness app. You know, you'll talk about it. You'll pick up a magazine. And, you know, there has been, even in the last few years, so much more talk about mental health issues. My mum had one day when I think she tried to reach out and she went to her GP. And I record very casually in my diary. Mum went to the doctor today and got some Valium Watched Crown Court <laughs> is what the entry says. So, um, and that was the start. She got put on Valium, as did a lot of women of her generation. And then, you know, I don't really know the full story. She never ever told me. But I know from that point on, she did suffer, you know, mood swings and sort of just erratic behaviour, which I thought was just, you know, oh God, mums being awful. Mums are so dreadful. You know, they're just, they're terrible. mean they? mums are mad. Um, but actually, I look back now and think. Wow, she really was going through some shit, and at the same yeah. time, I was doing my rebellious bit.
2: Yeah, that's so a, striking, a striking moment in the book when you look back at those diaries and talk about how it makes you feel to yeah, read them back. Yeah, because
0: I can, you know, I can see, okay, I'm now exactly that age. I've, I've now been through the experience of having teenagers, so I do have more insight into it. Yeah. So, you know, I, again, I try to find a fine line between being forgiving and also not totally forgiving, mm. um, because. You know, one of the lessons I learned from all that was to try and bring up my own kids entirely differently Um, and all the kind of, it'll all be all right as long as we don't talk about anything and all the just, you know, sit down, stop making a fuss. You know, it's terrible. It's a terrible, terrible thing to do to kids.
2: Um, your relationship with your dad—you um, you talk about towards the end of book, the book because your dad, your dad died when you mm. were when you were working on it—and you you kind of surprise the reader with that. It sort of you know it takes the wind out of your sails, and you find out more about your dad. Um, as he's dying and and after he's died. What is it that that you find out about him?
0: I mean, you know, we had a slightly prickly relationship, me and my dad. Again, especially in my teens. Um, And I think the political arguments were always more with my dad than with my mum. With my mum, the arguments were about, you know, going out, what I was wearing, boyfriends. With my dad, it was classic dinner table, um, you know, oh my God, he's going to talk about Thatcher. He's going to talk about Thatcher. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So that was... You know, it was... And it never stopped. I mean, there is a funny scene I describe in the book where towards the very end of his life, I think only about a year before he died, my sister and I took him on a little holiday to Tenerife to sort of just, you know get him out in the sun. And there's an evening when we sit down and have dinner and too much wine is drunk and my dad and I end up having a teenage <laughs> row at the end of which I storm out. <laughs> almost shouting, you fascist! When you are how old? He's 91 years <laughs> old by now and I'm in my 50s. And yet still, I think he said something about the NHS and that was it. It was just red rag to a bull. And the thing is, I realised, you know, we were still inhabiting those same roles. Yeah. In his mind, I was still Tracy, who, oh, she's from another planet, can't possibly understand her, you know, and what does she think she knows about politics? She's just a girl. Um, And and here I was still reacting in this knee-jerk way to this approach, which was just so patronising and infuriating. But, yeah, when he actually died, there was a moment when uh, my two siblings and I had to do the clearing out of his flat... And, I mean, came across some interesting things. He wasn't a hoarder, so it wasn't like we uncovered any massive secrets. Mm. But the most interesting thing at the back of a wardrobe was a little sort of weathered leather briefcase, and we opened it up, and inside were all his RAF records. And he had joined the RAF towards the very end of the war, so he never saw active service. He was mm. lucky. He did, But he did his full training, you know in the expectation that he would be seeing active service. He yeah. didn't know in 1944 that he was going to miss it. And he was 18. And I think my daughters at that time were 18. And again, it, you know, it's a really shocking moment when you just sit back and think, OK, right, that's my kids. They've yeah. suddenly had to join up. And you know, and at that stage in the war, I think you know, the life expectancy for Air Force pilots was not good. Yeah. Um, so... He never, ever talked about it. Never mentioned it. And yet he kept all these records. You know, there they
2: were in a briefcase. It meant mm.
0: something.
2: Mm. So this was incredibly um, important to him. But I also think incredibly important to him to protect you from it. It seemed to me that was part of the reason why, because he was. I know. Well, was that's afraid. That,
0: that's that sort of delusional thing I think that that generation had. That if we do, again magical thinking, if we yeah. don't, where did I get it from? You know, yeah. Yeah. if we yeah. don't talk well, about things, yeah. um, they haven't happened. We can actually make things go away. Um, It runs very deep. And having been brought up by that generation, I can still sense that there's a bit of me in it. And it's a sort of constant act of rebellion against it, Mm -hmm. um, like it is against the stop showing off thing. The the little messages that you receive as a child, they don't ever go away. You just... um, You have to keep doing the work of not letting them rule you, and if you're really convinced that they're they're just not good advice, which I am convinced they're not good advice, then I sort of have to keep on... Finding your voice. Yeah,
2: doing the opposite of what I was taught. Did in some ways your music become a diary for you? Did you use that Mm. as a way of working your thoughts out?
0: Yeah, I think it did. Um, And I think it was a very... Useful extension of the diary in that it was more honest and it was more emotional. Mm. I think I'd reached a limit in the diary with all this, you know, factual record keeping. There's lots about what I had for lunch every day and what time I went to bed and who was in faulty Towers. And, you know, it's that's it's,
2: a song we all want to hear. It's that fun is. to
0: read, um, but, you know, it's a bit, it's sort of, you think there's, there's so many gaps here. Yeah. But once I started writing music, there is something about the power of actually putting it into a song that sort of unleashed something in me and I think made me feel, well, if I'm going to do this at all, I think
2: it's time to um, open up a bit more and be more emotional. Is that also because you were doing it with somebody else? Because you were having, they could ask questions and hold you accountable to the stuff that you were writing and saying.
0: Well, no, most of my early writing was all done by myself. I was very a very solitary songwriter. Um, I mean, I have been most of my songwriting career the whole thing of um making music and not wanting to be overheard Mm. is still there yeah uh once things are finished i don't mind people hearing them but in the early stages i still actually prefer to do everything
2: (laughs) is that the same with your writing when you're writing books do you just turn in a draft at the end of the day it's done pretty much yes
0: i'm not a great one for bouncing ideas back and
2: forth um Speaking of ideas, you are writing something new, and you mentioned it really casually the other day to Mm. me, and I was like, well, I didn't know anything about this. (laughs) Um, what, What is it?
0: Well, no, I can. It's not secret at all. So I'm at the very early stages of starting a new book, um, Mm -hmm. which is non-fiction again. It's not a novel, and people always say, oh, write a novel, but I still can't work out how. You'll have to tell me later (laughs) how to write a novel. I'll tell you later. I'll
2: tell you later. I don't know how you do that. I think you will write a novel. But at the moment,
0: I'm still on non-fiction. So I'm going to do someone else's story. So basically the um, central character in my new book is a woman called Lindy Morrison, who was the drummer in an Australian band called The Go-Betweens in the 80s, who never quite made it, critically revered, never particularly successful. Um, And in the 80s, she became a very good friend of mine. When I met her, I was 20 and she was 31, which is quite a big age gap at that age. Mm. And... She was just an inspiration to me. And she'd had a really interesting life before joining the band. The story of the band is really interesting and has been told, but has, I think, been sort of mistold. And and I want to write a book so that's partly about her as a big larger-than-life character, Mm -hmm. partly about our friendship, and partly is a reclaiming of a woman in music story because, you know, stories get retold and the women get left out or they get reduced to being minor characters or they get reduced to just being trouble. I mean, her image is that she was just trouble. There's this sort of reputation that hangs around her and that's because she was fucking interesting, actually. Yes. (laughs) Amazing. Um, So there's lots to do. There's lots of work to do, lots of talking to various different people. It's not going to be a rock biography with quotes from journalists. It's going to be a bit more you know, internalised and me trying to get inside her. It's about your but, relationship with her. Yeah, it is. And it's just... a And also trying to, to see things a bit from her point of view. She's got lots of good stories to tell as well, so...
2: Why isn't she just writing her own memoir? She
0: doesn't want to. That's a very good question, and it's the one I asked her at first. Yeah. Um, she wrote a very short piece a couple of years ago that I think appeared in The Guardian, and she put it on Facebook. And all her friends, we all said, Lindy, you've got to write a book. And she went, no, no. And I posted saying well just tell me your stories and i'll write it and then i kind of went wait hang on that's a brilliant idea <laughs> and, uh, so it just took off from there
2: brilliant yeah, yeah very it'll exciting. be fun. It'll it be will be fun. um okay we're going to take some questions for tracy now um i think the house lights will start it's to nice. sort of gradually okay. increase and we'll see you <laughs> yeah. and some microphones yeah. there there's lots of people out there and um, put your hand up if you have a if you have a question for tracy just about <laughs> see everyone it. hides no, for no. a minute oh there's someone right up, up there is there a roving mic yeah, up there yeah there's a roving oh, mic look. up there yeah. yes nice man waving up there, <laughs> there you go hello Tracy hello um, first well, I love of all, that you're standing to ask your question that's very formal
1: <laughs> well you know I'm, I'm in royalty um, first of all David Essex absolutely <laughs> 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 I, I think that Neil just is the reason I ended up moving to Brighton. I had this idea that there was be someone on a world that looked like David Essex. Um, there isn't. Um, my question uh, goes back to something you said earlier about when you started um, writing music and playing music, you um, felt you needed to be very quiet. Mm. And I would say, you know, your, your music is. Real, the the sound, soundtrack to my life, Eden is still my absolute favourite so, favorite album of all time amongst any artist ever. Just, I've got two or three versions of it. I play it and play it and play it. And I just wondered, given that you felt you needed to be quieter when you started recording music, now, a few years later, are there any songs from maybe the 80s that you would love to re-record with your new, you know, with your older self in a slightly different way. I don't think so. I mean, I do...
0: <laughs> That's I, a no. no. that was a no. No,
1: no, no, no.
0: But I do honestly think there is a real power in quiet, and that was what I started to explore as soon as I was making music. You know, with the Marine Girls, we used to, even pre-everything but the girl, we had no drama. we were really quiet. But we used to play gigs with other much louder, punkier bands, who'd go on, you know, the first two bands, and then we'd come on, and we would sort of defiantly stand there, not making noise. And in those days as well, gig audiences were very largely blokes. Mm. um, And we would sort of force them to be quiet. Um, And I read an amazing description of Peggy Lee recently, which said that when she used to be singing in jazz clubs, and there would often be that little kind of, you know, tinkle of glasses and people chatting. And it sometimes would get a bit noisy. And her strategy when it got like that was to sing quieter and quieter. Because the quieter you are, it makes people actually have to pay attention. And it really that really rang a bell with me when I read it. And I thought, I think what I tried to do was make a virtue out of that necessity and think, well, OK, look, I'm not going to be Patti Smith. I tried for a few months at the beginning in my first ever band and it just didn't suit me. And so then I thought, well, it's what every artist has to do. You stop copying the people you've been inspired by and you go, OK, so what's me? What's the thing I can bring to the table? And... Um, the thing I decided to do was to make a strength of it and, you know, to make something quite intense about that quietness. So, no, I wouldn't go and, you know, <laughs> do a different, a different version of them because they, they kind of stand. Yeah, I mean, you, I mean, you, know, you could do, that, yeah. Mean, <laughs>
2: <laughs> we could probably you know. do it later. We could bust one up. How, <laughs> how do you think your voice has changed? How do you hear your voice differently now than, than, when, than when you started?
0: It's kind different
2: on on various different records
0: um it, it's it's i mean since my menopause in the last sort of three or four years it's definitely gone down a little bit and there's a slight huskiness there that didn't <laughs> used to be there which i quite like yeah. when i did the new album last year um, as soon as i started doing the vocals i thought oh god i do actually sound a bit different even to how i sounded five years ago um, I mean, when I go back and listen to the early stuff, I do sound so young. You can really, you can tell the difference between a, a very young voice and a more mature voice. And I think that slight, you know, the slight huskiness that comes in, which can increase more and more as you get older, it can be really interesting. Mm. You know, you, you get that quality. You know, Joni Mitchell's got it in her voice, and when she's gone back and then she has then done you know, more recent versions of older songs when she had that incredible sort of clarity and purity of voice and now there's a sort of more aged um, voice that's, you know, and she's recorded it, you know, quite unadorned and it's an amazing thing to hear. Mm. I think I actually like the way voices change. I think it's interesting.
2: Uh, I'll take one more question and then we'll go to a big gentleman here in a sparkly glitter shirt. He's got Pride Month. He's wearing it. He's wearing it. <laughs> so a microphone um, or do you just want to shout it out and I'll repeat it. Go on. Yes. Um, first of all, amazing book. Thank you. For- oh, thank you. I Just wondered how the 18 year old Tracy would feel if your mum had
1: expressed something <laughs> so this is a question about a him i haven
2: 't mm. read, so um, but it 's about your yeah you, yeah, about, yeah No, I
0: wrote one this week which is about the fact that i 've come to the end of my days as a school parent the youngest has just finished school completely i mean it's interesting I do get asked this thing about you know what what 's it like for your kids if you write about them yeah. um, which i don 't do that much, but I do do a little bit um, and Um, You know, I try to never give away too much actual information about them. They're often just referred to. Um, I literally cannot imagine what that would have been like to have my mum writing about me. Um, I remember just thinking, you know, because my parents didn't do anything like that, I don't think I had any um, thought that they might have any kind of hinterland or be thinking things like that. I mean, teenagers are very self-obsessed anyway. People say to me, you know, are your kids interested in your work? And I'm going, have you ever met a teenager? I mean, why would they be interested in their aged mum's work? I mean, I wasn't interested in what my parents thought or felt about anything. You just literally aren't. Um, They just, you know, they're just old.
2: (laughs) But your kids are so going to write about you. Yeah, yeah, I know,
0: probably. There's stuff in the garage like boxes of old stuff and Ben and I just sometimes said, do you know what, we should just burn
2: all this. <laughs> <laughs> you are not going to stop them and I can't wait to do a salon with one of your children oh in the future and you can sit in the audience and I might let you ask a question. Wait till I'm dead, darling, please. <laughs> please join me in thanking Tracy Thorne. Thank
0: you.
1: <laughs> we'll be back after the interval with Dr Linespa.